You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Obvious, Misfit, Sean, DJ Jesus 72, Lee, David, Torso and Pinches, Matt, the Snarlin' Sea Dog, Hangman Strain, John, Sir Rancid Cheese, Shelby, Andrew, Axios, Vanderwood, Richard, Noah, Infamous Florida Man, Hartman, Skipper, The Sextant, Brian, Cap'n Crunch, Roger the Jolly, Vibran, Artemis Killmeister, Keelhaw Chris, Carcos, Sean, Rotary Coast, M.D., Seth, Ghost 750X, Lost Again, The Navigator, Vasios, Doc Lindsay, Pitlock, Ward, Workman, Chairboat, Gunsway Sally, Cannon Monkey, Rum Runner, Madame Anita Sparrow, Hefe, Bull, Vertigon, Rumgut, The Snarlin' Sea Dog, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. Today, we were going to discuss the trial of an English captain named Thomas Green. However, the more I read about him, the clearer it became that the trial of Tom Green is intimately tied to the story of Scotland, including the Jacobites and the Union with England. So we're going to wait to talk about Captain Tom Green. Today, we're talking Scotland. This is episode 335, Bishops, Barons, and Burrs. Before we get started, I want to make a couple of notes. First, I'm nowhere near an expert on religious matters. We're going to be talking a bit of religion today, but I'm only going to be giving you my best understanding of the topic, which isn't great. Second, we're going to be talking a lot of Scottish politics. And politics in Scotland in this era can be kind of a quagmire. There are a lot of moving parts, a lot of shifting alliances and beliefs going on. Which is to say that the politics could get confusing. I tried to break it down into bite-sized pieces, but pretty soon I was lost in the maze as well. So, I'm going to keep it simple, 
I'm not going to try to explain anything beyond the bare bones, because I don't think I could even if I tried. But remember here that we're talking in very broad strokes and leaving out a lot of the nuance. And then third, a note on the Jacobites themselves. As a sociopolitical movement, they were kind of weird. In the span of about 50 years, we see a lot of different versions of Jacobite. There were the early English Jacobites, who tended to be royalist, loyalist, and Catholic. That was a small movement, but they did exist. However, that's not who we're talking about today. Third, we would find the latter-day Jacobites. They were defined by a sort of culturally rebellious, anti-authoritarian antipathy toward the Hanoverian monarchy. Those are the Jacobites that are going to influence men like Henry Jennings and the Pirates of Nassau, but they're really a direct outgrowth from the Jacobites we're talking about today. So, who were these early Scottish Jacobites? Well, to understand that, for me to understand it, and hopefully to explain it properly, we're going to have to go back and take an in-depth look at Gaelic monasticism from Roman Britannia in the 2nd century CE. Now I'm just messing with you, but I did want to inoculate you to the fact that we are going back to the Reformation. During the Protestant Reformation, Great Britain was home to two main schools of thought. And I'm not going to talk about any theological stuff here. I'm going to avoid transubstantiation and the merits of adult versus infant baptism. None of that. I want to focus on how these schools of thought impacted Scottish politics, so that means we need to talk about church governance. First, there's the Episcopalian tradition. Episcopalianism operated under a congress of bishops, very much like the Catholic Church did. The bishops themselves operated under the head of the church. In this case, it would have been King Henry VIII of England. According to ChristianityFAQ.com, quote, the Episcopalian Church is a middle way between Catholic and Protestant. End quote. Now, I don't know anything about ChristianityFAQ.com. It's just the first result when I googled Episcopalian versus Presbyterian. So I don't know how accurate that claim would be, but according to my great-aunt, who was a deacon in the American Episcopal Church, she called her faith, quote, Catholic light. Now, on the other hand, we have the Presbyterian tradition. Presbyterianism is a Calvinist sect. Their founder was a man named John Knox, who studied under John Calvin. Knox took some of Calvin's teachings, introduced a bit of the primitive church and the teachings of St. John, and voila, we have Presbyterianism, and that's as deep as we're going to go. The Presbyterian tradition, though, was overseen by groups of elders known as presbyters. Now, aside from the actual technical bureaucracy of how the church was organized, the big difference that I can find between a college of bishops and a court of elders is their view on how to teach their parishioners. And I suppose how their parishioners were to express their faith. The Presbyterians believed in education, in a personal reading of the Bible, and in confessions of faith. So they would teach you to read, because it's, you know, 1550. Then they would give you a Bible and ask you to read it. Come Sunday, 
They wanted you to talk in church about what you learned this week from your reading the Bible. These are essentially the confessions of faith. But it's not just you they're teaching to read. They want to teach your wife to read as well. And then they encourage her to read the Bible and encourage the two of you to read it together and to you know talk about it. And here's the really crazy bit. If your wife has something to say come Sunday, you know, like an independent thought, she's encouraged to do so. Madness, right? So that's all the religious talk I've got. And I'm not going to cast judgment on one theory versus the other, but it seems like, broadly speaking, the Episcopalians tend to be a top-down sort of faith, while the Presbyterians seem to be more of a bottom-up sort of faith. But at this point, there was really very little conflict between these two versions of Protestantism. The Episcopalians were English Anglicans. The Presbyterians were Scottish. They were, you know, two different kingdoms. Henry VIII wasn't trying to enforce his faith on a foreign sovereign nation, and his daughters were too busy dealing with the Catholic problem in England to care at all. But in 1604, Queen Elizabeth died and James VI of Scotland became James I of England. Now, we've already talked about all of this. There's no reason to go into any depth here, but there are a couple of new pieces that I want to introduce. So what I'm going to do is try to go through the next 84 years of history as fast as possible. King James reorganized the Scottish Church, called commonly the Kirk, under Episcopalian tradition and brought it under the governance of the Anglican bishops. The Presbyterian Court of Elders, opposed to this move, formed the Covenant and called themselves the Covenanters. They waged a theological war against the Anglicans. Pretty soon, this turned into an actual war called the Bishops' War, and pretty soon, that turned into the English Civil War. The Civil War led to a split in the ranks of the Kirk. Some of their members believed they should support the king, because he was the king. Others believed they should support the parliament, because the king kept messing with their religion. As we know, the king lost. Cromwell won, and the Commonwealth was established. Oliver Cromwell established freedom of religion for all Protestant sects in Great Britain. This tore the Scottish Kirk apart. Every single individual congregation now had to decide how they wanted to be run. Were they going to be Episcopalian, under the Congress of Bishops? Were they going to be Presbyterian, run by a Council of Elders? Were they going to be Episcopalian, but actually just Catholic? Or were they going to follow some other doctrine, like the Quakers, or even the Diggers? Some of them liked the Puritan line. I mean, it was chaos. But even among the Presbyterians themselves, the Kirks suffered a serious schism. See, there was this question of readmittance into the Covenant. During the Civil War, those who supported the Royalist cause had been expelled from the Covenant. Now that the war was back over, they all wondered if it was okay to let them back in. One group, the Engagers, argued that, yes, we should let them back in. After all, forgiveness is kind of a big thing in our religion. The other side, though, the protesters, tended to be more fundamentalist, and they said, no, we shouldn't. In the end, the engagers won this debate, and the exiles were readmitted. But this schism, despite its religious implications, became a serious political question that's going to define a lot of what's to come. But then, of course, in 1660, the monarchy was restored, 
Charles II almost immediately passed the Recissory Act of 1661. The Recissory Act abolished all Kirk reforms that had been passed by the Covenanters. Everything. This rolled church governance back to the state it had been in 1633, the state of affairs that brought about the Bishop's War. So a lot of those earlier disputes, they were put on the back burner. This was serious. This was an audacious move on the part of the king, even a tyrannical move. The Kirk, really the covenant here, they rejected it uniformly. To the people of Scotland, not necessarily the ruling class, but, you know, everyone else, this was unacceptable. However, King Charles II went ahead and implemented it anyway. He tried to offer a couple of soothing balms by ensuring the people that the bishops would all be Scottish. You know, I'm not going to put Englishmen in there, but it wasn't enough. Charles realized that the only way he was going to preserve the Episcopalian tradition in Scotland was through force. The next few years saw a series of acts and orders that were intended to rid the Kirk of all of this Presbyterian heresy. The people of Scotland were to submit to the bishops, attend a proper mass every Sunday, and to keep quiet. But that's not what happened. Now, we spent an entire episode talking about what happened. It was episode 115, The Killing Time. So, if you want to go back and listen to that, that's fine, but we don't need to rehash all of it here. But you can understand it was pretty bad if it was called The Killing Time. However, it's here that I want to introduce one of those new pieces to the board. He was the executor of the killing time, or maybe the executioner. His name was John Graham of the Claverhouse estate. And we're going to call him Claverhouse because there are a lot of guys named Graham in this story. Now, the Claverhouse estate was large and rich, and his family was wealthy, but they did not have a noble title. However, this guy's great-uncle was none other than James Graham, first Marquess of Montrose. Now, this Montrose is going to die before our story really gets going, but you need to remember his family. The Montrose family is going to play a role. Claverhouse, being a young, up-and-coming man with no real prospects, joined the Anglo-Scottish army during the Franco-Dutch War back in 1672. He served in the Scottish Battalion under the French Marshal Turenne and fought against the forces of William of Orange. Now, this war against the Protestant Dutch on the side of the Catholic French was deeply unpopular in Scotland. However, this Scottish Battalion was made up of an elite group of Scottish soldiers that supported King Charles in his fight against the Dutch. Nearly all of these Scottish soldiers were well-off, well-known, and uniformly Episcopalian. And a lot of these guys are going to go on to form the cohesive core of what's going to be the Jacobite movement. Through his exemplary service and bravery in battle, Claverhouse rose pretty quickly through the ranks of the Scottish battalion. The Duke of York, James, the king's brother, he took note of this young, skilled soldier who was fighting so fiercely against the Dutch. And he took a 
personal interest in this young man's career. Once the war began to wind down, though, Claverhouse was reassigned back to Scotland. He took his top officers with him, the corps of that Scottish battalion, and when the war finally ended, nearly all his soldiers came to join him. This was an elite group, and they were fiercely loyal to Claverhouse. He treated his soldiers very well, and, you know, did all the things that a good commander is supposed to do. But despite the fact that the war on the continent was over, they were not done fighting. There was another war going on back in Scotland. The war against the Presbyterians. Claverhouse would lead his Highland Legion in that war, and he did a good job. So good that the entire era got nicknamed the Killing Time. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. Yeah, the show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. There is another person of note in these campaigns that we need to talk about. Archibald Campbell, Earl of Argyle. See, Argyle was a staunch Presbyterian, which was, in Scotland, illegal. He was also one of the most powerful lords in Scotland. But thanks to his lenient treatment of the Covenanters and his suspected religious leanings, his powerful position was always in a state of peril. The king, and especially his brother, used this as a kind of leeway to get Argyle to do a lot of stuff that was really against his will. At one point, James himself showed up at Argyle's estate. He informed the lord that the king was looking upon his position of authority with disapproval. So he encouraged Argyle to show his loyalty by raising an army and joining with Claverhouse in his campaign against the Presbyterians. And Argyle did it. A Presbyterian lord raised Presbyterian troops to go kill Presbyterian rebels. But Argyle did manage to get something out of it. He convinced Claverhouse that the greatest danger to the king's authority in all of Scotland was Clan Maclean. Currently, Clan Maclean was in possession of the Isle of Mull. And he wasn't lying, exactly. They were a powerful rebel force in command of a castle on a very desirable piece of real estate. So Claverhouse took this advice and went to war with Clan Maclean. And eventually, he won by killing a lot of them. However, it just so happened that once Clan Maclean was out of power, 
Argyle was able to press his own claim on Isle Mall and add it to his holdings. So he got Claverhouse to do a bit of his dirty work for him. Then in 1681, King Charles passed a test act. All lords in Scotland, and even some large landowners, had to swear an oath to uphold the episcopacy. They had to swear allegiance to the king, and they had to swear their true belief in the divine right of kings. Argyle had to decide whether or not he was going to do it. And he eventually decided, yes, I need to do this, and planned to go through with it, but at just the wrong moment, he faltered. So, he was arrested. Argyle was imprisoned in Edinburgh Castle, but eventually managed to escape. He fled underground and led the resistance against King Charles, eventually playing a major role in Monmouth's rebellion. Claverhouse, though, played no role whatsoever in Monmouth's rebellion. In 1684, Claverhouse had been raised Constable of Dundee, which was a pretty big promotion. Thanks to his exemplary military service, he was named to sit on the Scottish Privy Council down in London. After about a year on the Privy Council, Claverhouse got into a series of public and very heated debates with some of his superiors. He was upset over the treatment of Scottish soldiers, especially those very loyal men in the Highland regiments. Without Claverhouse in direct command, since he was in London, morale had begun to suffer in the Highland regiments. But Claverhouse, because he had argued so publicly and vociferously for these men's treatment, he was reprimanded. But he continued to agitate for them, and eventually they fired him. And things did not look great for his career. But then, just like a month later... King Charles II died. King James, the new guy, was much more understanding of Claverhouse's point of view. However, he did not reinstate him to the Privy Council. Instead, he created the Viscount of Dundee and made Claverhouse the first Viscount Dundee. But then he was promoted to the rank of Major General. All of a sudden, with the accession of James II, Dundee was the second most powerful military commander in Scotland. He was a landed noble, and he had the king's ear. Things were going great for him. That same year, 1685, the Earl Argyll passed away. His son, the ninth Earl of Argyll, tried to make nice with King James. He wanted to re-establish a friendly relationship. But it didn't go well. He was the son of a traitor, so he was not going to be accepted. Thus, the son of a traitor decided also to turn traitor. This new Earl Argyll conspired with virtually every Presbyterian in Scotland, every Whig in England, and he gathered a ton of support against King James. He wasn't single-handedly responsible for organizing the Glorious Revolution of 1688, but he was the first guy to sail over to the Netherlands and tell William that, you know, hey, if you want the throne of England, you're going to get it. And as we know, he did, and he did. In 1688, 
William of Orange Nassau was made William III of England. Now, the Scottish faced a big question in the wake of the Glorious Revolution. Would Scotland support James VII or William II? Those are their Scottish denominations. To answer this question, the Scottish Privy Council called a Convention of the Estates of Scotland in 1689. Now, historically, the Convention of the Estates was comprised of representatives from the three recognized social classes, the estates. In Scotland, these were defined as bishops, barons, and burghs. This definition may have had some currency way back when, but I suspect it was never really an accurate descriptor of who was actually attending the convention. I suspect that they chose that phrasing mostly because they liked the alliteration. Whether that's true or not, though, the Convention of Estates of 1689 had a much broader representation than bishops, barons, and burrs. It wound up looking a lot like the Estates General of France, which would be called in almost exactly a hundred years' time. The representatives of the first estate, the clergy, that did indeed include a lot of bishops, but it also included regular clergymen, and in Scotland, that means presbyters. Blue-collar, well-read, and wearing black suits. The second estate, the nobility, included not just bishops, but every rank of nobility in Scotland. There were a couple of dukes there, a marquis or two, some earls, a few viscounts, and finally, at the bottom, the barons. And then, in the third estate, you find the representatives of everyone else, the people of Scotland. The burrs, which comes from the same root as bourgeois, burgesses, or burghers. Basically, the burrs were the men who would have been elected as an MP in their home district had the Parliament been in session. Now, in 1689, there was no sitting Parliament, but when it did convene in a few months' time, these guys, the Burrs, were almost exactly the same people who were elected to Parliament. And they were all leaders in their communities, usually middle-class, white-collar, you know, lawyers, merchants, that kind of guy. The first order of business of the convention was to elect a president. For the convention. Through the Scottish Privy Council, King William III of England nominated a very friendly nobleman named William, Duke of Hamilton. William, Duke of Hamilton. Now, William himself is going to be important in this story, but his sons, James and Archibald Hamilton, are going to be extremely important. Archibald Hamilton is going to be named governor of Jamaica in 1712, and he's going to form something of a notoriously close relationship with the privateers of Nassau. Now, some members of the first and second estates stringently opposed Duke Hamilton. This convention was a council called to decide the Scottish position toward King William. Wouldn't it be a bit of a conflict of interest to elect the man who had been nominated by that king? And it's a fair point. I mean, in a way, it kind of supersedes any debate over the real issue. You know, if this guy gets elected, it's pretty clear where everyone stands, and so 
It makes having a real discussion seem almost pointless. Still, though, Duke Hamilton won, which made it pretty clear how everybody intended to vote when it came to the question of King William, which makes one wonder, what are they actually doing here? But everybody began to realize, kind of slowly at first, that if that was a non-issue at this point, there were other things to discuss in the kingdom. And the biggest of those questions, after the king, was the future of the church. See, there were 125 representatives in this convention. 75 of those representatives were Presbyterian. Only 50 were Episcopalian. Once everyone did the math, they realized that this convention would be a very good opportunity to make a decision about the role of the bishops in the church. Now, the Episcopalians, they could count, so they realized this wasn't going to go well. Some of them, those who were most ardently opposed to both King William and any change being made to the role of the bishops, well, they left. They walked out. They decided to boycott the convention. And this group were led by none other than John Graham, the Viscount Dundee. The guards there at the House of Parliament said that they watched Viscount Dundee and his compatriots walk away, get on their horses, and ride down the street. And as they rode away, the men kept an eye on them. And it appears that they climbed the hill to Edinburgh Castle, just about a half a block away. Edinburgh Castle was under the command of the Duke of Gordon. Now, the Duke of Gordon outranked Dundee in the nobility, but not in the army and they both now knew that it was time for armies. So Dundee did what he could to bolster Gordon's spirits. He encouraged him to hold the castle against the Presbyterians, against any force they might bring down on him. But he promised that when the time was right, he would return with an army. And then Dundee left to raise that army from his Highland veterans. Everyone now knew that they were at war. But at first, it was just a war of letters. King James fired off the first volley. He sent letters to Dundee and Gordon and the convention. The letter to the convention demanded obedience to their rightful king, James, and he ordered them to raise an army and join his forces in Ireland, from which they would begin his campaign to retake the British Isles. Now, I don't think that James really expected that to work, but he was declaring his intention. And if he was successful, and the delegates of the convention decided not to heed his orders, they would be traitors and treated as such. That letter very possibly might have convinced some of the delegates to vacillate. But then the people of Scotland had their say. Not the white-collar representatives in the convention, regular people. A mob began to form outside the parliament building. A few dozen, then a couple hundred, then a couple thousand. And they were armed. No cannons, no big guns, but muskets, certainly. Plenty of pitchforks and torches as well. Now, I want to take a moment here and reflect on the fact that this is a large group of angry protesters influencing national public policy. 
in 1689, that was still a novel event. It wasn't terribly common in any point in world history. I mean, it did happen from time to time. The phrase mob rule is actually traced back to Polybius, a Roman historian, a Greek Roman historian from the 2nd century BC. So, it's an old concept, but in Europe, this kind of thing for the past, you know, 2,000 years had been pretty rare. But it was about to become distressingly common. In fact, the modern version of the word mob, meaning, according to the Oxford English Dictionary, a, quote, disorderly part of the population, rabble, common mass, the multitude, especially when rude or disorderly, a riotous assemblage. That word entered the English language right now. I'm not comfortable saying that it was because of this exact mob right here, but the Scottish were going to start doing this kind of thing a lot in the years to come. The older version of the word mob was derived from the word mobile. It was in respect to a large group of something that was able to move as one. A herd of cattle, for example was often called a mob, so it's not a very nice word to use when you're talking about people. But it's not inaccurate either. Once the convention had been sufficiently cowed, it's a little cattle humor for you, but once it was clear that their job at the convention was done, the mob did not disperse. Instead, they walked down the street to Edinburgh Castle and they waved their guns and their pitchforks and their torches and went rabble, 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 and inside, Lord Gordon was getting very nervous. Now, had this played out differently, it's not impossible to imagine the mob rolling up a few cannons to the front gate. Had things played out differently, we might be talking about a Scottish storming of the Bastille moment, Exactly, almost exactly, a hundred years before the French got around to it. But Gordon decided to capitulate. He surrendered the castle on 14 June 1689, so exactly 99 years and 11 months before Bastille Day. Amazingly, Gordon wasn't arrested and imprisoned, or, you know, strung up by the mob right there. They let him go. He took his meager troop levies to join those of King James over in Ireland. In the meantime, though, the convention decided to take action against the Viscount Dundee. They wrote a letter ordering Dundee to stand down, to cease his treasonous actions, and to report to the convention immediately. Dundee wrote back. He informed the convention that he was taking no such traitorous actions, he was relaxing at home. He was enjoying a bit of an early retirement from military life. And he wished that he could immediately join the convention. And he would, but he has to beg a delay, because right now, you see, his wife is pregnant with their first child, and he doesn't want to be away from her in this trying time. It's all perfectly reasonable. But Dundee was, get this, lying. He was not at his home. He was living in a military camp in the Highlands. He and his personal guard of deeply loyal dragoons, 
they were busy recruiting from the men of the Highlands. And they were doing well. Before the year was out, Scotland would see their first Jacobite uprising. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who helps to support the show. All of our patrons on Patreon, everybody who has left us ratings or reviews, and everybody who has recommended this show to your friends or family. You all make this possible. Thank you. The Pirate History Podcast is a member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. If you'd like to check out some of their other fine shows, like, well, since we're getting a little revolutionary this week, how about Age of Napoleon? You can do so at airwavemedia.com. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. You can find them on YouTube, Spotify, Bandcamp, or anywhere fine music is found. After you're done there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening. Tonight